Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Antonia Stearns, Tony, who grew up overseas with her Foreign Service parents, James and Amelie Riddleberger, and accompanied her FSO husband, Monteagle, to many posts abroad over 28 years on four continents, including three tours in Athens and two ambassadorial appointments. Welcome, Tony, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. So let's start with your childhood and family. Your mother was raised in the Dutch East Indies, and your father was American. While your parents were serving in the Foreign service in Berlin just before World War II. Your mother came back to Washington, D.C. for your birth in 1936. So how did that happen? Well, that happened because my mother was Dutch. And although she hadn't ever lived in Holland, she had been born and raised in the East Indies. She came to do her university studies in Switzerland, where she met and married my father, And he was on his first Foreign Service tour in Geneva. So this was 1931 when they married. She had her first child there in Switzerland. But then they were transferred to Berlin, I think in 35. And this was a horrible period. Hitler was in full charge. The Nazis were absolutely triumphant. And she was pregnant with me and then later with my younger brother. The State Department was very cavalier. There was no paid home leave. There was no health insurance. My poor father's pay was a pittance. And he had a pregnant wife. And the chances were that I would be a German national if I were born there. So he put her steerage class back home and she gave birth and then she caught the next boat back. So I was born in Washington, but from the age of a week or two weeks, I spent my first five years in Germany, Berlin. Wow, that must have been very stressful for your mother. She was a trooper, as I think everybody was. This was the depression. She was used to hardship. It just was what it was. And people had a stiff upper lip. Now, it's possible that she screamed to to her husband and said, why are you making me do this and all the rest? But that's what she did. And then she did it again for my younger brother, And then by the end of 1940, when he was one year old, my older brother and I, and Peter, the younger boy, she had to take us all out of Berlin alone. So for her, the 1930s were tough. Yeah. So during your childhood and adolescence, your father's various postings included Berlin during the occupation after World War II while you were in junior high school, Paris while you were in high school, and then when you were in college visiting Belgrade, Yugoslavia, where your father was ambassador. So how were those years for you during your childhood and adolescence? Well, childhood was lovely because we were in Washington during World War II. This is when my father was in London. Once again, the hardship fell all on my mother, but I never noticed. Every household had a male member who just wasn't there. And then going back to Berlin during the occupation, to the victors belong the spoils, and it was a ghastly place. It was a smoking ruin. It certainly ended my childhood vision of World War II as a patriotic game played safely at home. So that between 46 and 50, Berlin was an eye-opener, and I really grew up in junior high school. We lived the life of the conquerors. We had a big villa requisition. We had army jeeps, army drivers, army PXs. We played softball. (laughs) (laughs) the school was requisitioned. We could have been in middle America. We played basketball and baseball. We had Coke machines, hot dogs, and hamburgers in our school life. At home, in this enormous villa, my parents were entertaining the German, the first people who were going to form a post-war German government, exiles, 
Adenauer, Willy Brandt, all of these people came to our house and I was old enough to pass the peanuts so that my two brothers and I from a fairly early age listened in and we were very conscious. And then came the Berlin blockade, which was the most extraordinary year of our lives. And for one year, the airplanes droned overhead, bringing coal and food to two million people. And you couldn't speak. It was so noisy. And we had hardships, but in comparison to the Germans, no. We had four hours of electricity from 6 to 10 p.m. The first German friend that I made was a boy whose household had lights on from 2 a.m. until 5 a.m. And he came over and said, could I do my homework here so I don't have to get up at 2 a.m.? And I thought, we still have it pretty good. At any rate, we then went to Paris in 1950, and I was a sophomore in high school. And I went to the international school there, which was a pretty good school. I learned very good French. All of a French language, French culture, and history were taught in French. The other stuff was taught in English. I was extremely happy there. I thought of myself as a very soigné, young American sashaying down the boulevards, which, of course, I wasn't old enough to do. So there was a lot of sneaking out of the house and being a bad teenager, but not too bad. At any rate, we came home, wouldn't you know it, in my senior year, which of course for a teenager is just hell on earth. And we came back to Washington and I went to Western High School, which I think is now the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. I was, of course, Typhoid Mary. Nobody spoke to me for six months. And my parents being the type parents who just said, this too will pass. So I just gritted it out. I didn't have any friends. Nobody talked to me about college. I didn't take the SATs or whatever you do. And in the summer of 1953, my father, after just several months at home, was sent to Belgrade. And there I was out of high school, and I had not applied to any colleges. My parents were awfully casual about these things. And they said, you can come along to Belgrade. (laughs) And I just didn't want to. I wanted to wear penny loafers and I wanted to wear twin sweater sets and a strand of pearls. And I wanted to be all American. And Goucher College took pity on me and it took me in and it turned out to be a very good fit. I was very happy. I loved it. I, I was a full member of classes and sports and theater and skits, music, dancing. I had a lovely time. I just loved it. And that worked out very well. But it was sheer chance. Nobody took me to spend days visiting colleges, to take tests, to be interviewed, nothing. I just pulled up at Goucher College and it worked. It sounds like... After living in Germany and in France for all of those years and becoming immersed in those cultures, you were dropped into a foreign culture in Washington, D.C., and for six months had difficulty adjusting until you finally, by sheer luck, landed at Goucher. So looking back at your mother's life, how was her life as a foreign service wife in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s? And what do you remember about the roles, her roles in those various settings? Well, you know, certainly it was an older, more conservative role for wives. My mother was a superb hostess. She had a lot of style. She spoke six languages perfectly. She could turn to her left and talk in German and then turn to her right, talk in French. She played a role of setting a good table, running the household, raising us, making sure that my father's life ran smoothly. I would not say she was as active as I would become in an interest in politics. She just took what came, although she hated being in Germany in the 1930s. She just thought the politics were too awful. But 
she was polite and she spoke perfect German and so forth. When they went, for example, to Belgrade, the one language she didn't know was Serbo-Croatian. And she probably learned it within a year. And she became a kind of translator for Tito. And she was always placed next to him. And when John Foster Dulles came out, she would charm Dulles. And then she'd turn the other way and charm Tito. But at any rate, it was a conventional role, the way we think of diplomats' wives, when they were supposed to be helpful, but not leading anything. And everybody adored her. She was very charming. She absolutely loved people. I don't think politics interested her, but people she loved. And she could talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And that's a great help in being a spouse. Yeah, it sounds like you picked up a lot of traits from your mother. And she, over all of those decades, was a real asset to your father. In fact, your father's evaluations were in part based on her performance and what she did with Tito and all of those leaders must have helped propel your father in his career. And you also, in your early years in the Foreign Service, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but Monty, your husband, was evaluated on your performance as well. Yes, up until, was it the mid-70s? And I can remember having mixed feelings about it because I thought if we're two for the price of one, it would be nice to have it written down somewhere because I had no resume. And if I wanted to have a job at some point, there wasn't a piece of paper saying that I was competent. So I had reservations about being taken off. When I look at my daughter, who is also in the Foreign Service, but she's an officer. She is both a spouse and an officer. It is so different, and it's changed for the better, I'm sure. I was much more a product of what Reagan said about Nancy. What was it he said? I make the living, and she makes it worthwhile. Uh, And I like to think of myself in that martyred role, right? (laughs) I made it all possible. So let's backtrack a little bit. Your father was very successful and wound up as ambassador to Greece, and you visited him in Athens. So is that how you met your husband, Monteagle? Monty? Absolutely. I just was working on a tan, and I went to Athens, and I was going to stay a month, and I stayed for five years because I met Monty there. My parents were, happily for us, yanked out of Greece and brought back to Washington. And Monty and I shed crocodile tears and waved them off because it meant that we could stay (laughs) and rush to arrange for the quickest wedding we possibly could. And that's how I ended up staying there. So happily for you, you had five years as a newlywed in Athens. And after those five years, then Monty was posted to Leopoldville, Congo, which then became Kinshasa Zaire and is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. So he was the head of the political section from 1963 to 1965. And that must have been quite a culture shock for you. So what was the situation in the newly independent Congo? And how was your life there? Well, after Athens, you have to pay your dues. And the Congo was my dues. It was chaos. It was a failing state. There was revolution, bloodshed, warfare, tribal warfare, a weak government. The UN had come in in June of 1960, and it was out of money, and it was pulling out. But they were trying to create a police force. They were trying to create government agencies. The post office, the toilets were clogged with mail because nobody had delivered the mail. It was flushed down the toilet. And you just multiply that, and there was no food. There was food at the market. There were papayas and avocados and bananas. There was no meat. 
and shopping for food was a daily chore and you carried liquor around with you to bribe the butchers. It was every man for himself. We also lived in a house that was slightly out of town, up on a hill, and the pressure, water pressure, was very low. It had never been changed, fixed, and for two and a half years, we didn't have a drop of water. So you hire a driver and you buy 20 jerry cans, and the driver went up and down the hill and filled up the jerry cans, and we filled up the tub, and that was water. And you learned how to make use of it. You would first use it to drink, and then you'd use it to wash the dishes, and then you'd use it to mop the floor, and then you'd use it to flush. And you could carry it a long way that way. We cooked with it. I think we put something in it to cook with. I had a what was called a houseboy, and which he himself called himself boy. It was a combination of total chaos and a certain preservation of Belgian ways. Certainly the Congolese made the most delicious bread because of the Belgians. They had wonderful beer because of the Belgians. They made thick stews because of the Belgians, even though the temperature was 100. And you didn't know from one day to the next what would happen. There were times Monty came home. There were times when he didn't. The telephone worked every now and then. One day I got a call from the ambassador. The phone happened to be working. And he said, he is okay. You needn't worry. He is okay. But it'll probably take some time to bring him back. And I said, what are you talking about? (laughs) Monty flew around a lot in the army attache plane called the Bug Smasher, a single engine plane. And he went out and covered what was happening there in all these distant provinces. The Congo is as large as the whole eastern third of the U.S. It's a big place. And he would fly around. He would also rescue missionaries and this kind of thing. And apparently the Bug Smasher had crashed in Coquillatville. The pilot and he, very RAF of them, just climbed out and had to call in, radio in, that the plane was totaled. So somebody went up to bring them home again. But that was the kind of life that we had in the Congo in those days. Needless to say, I loved it because we were young, we were invincible, it was a challenge. The Congo was the center of the universe. Washington had its eye on it. And everybody loves a post where the uh, restless beam of uh, Washington's eye lands upon you. The Congo preceded Vietnam. And uh, people came to visit, specialists, medical people, spies, you can, and it was a very lively post. And like most hardship posts, it was terrific fun. You make wonderful friends, very close friends there. And they are friends for your whole life because you were all in the same foxhole. So I loved it. And I left in tears. We had hoped to stay an extra year And then it turned out that the pipeline for one's successor was moving. And so the person taking Monty's place had to come. We had two and a half years from January of 63 to July of 65. So much for the myth of the cushy, cushy cocktail circuit life of the Foreign Service family overseas, because it sounds like even the necessities were not predictable, food, water, but that your resourcefulness came through, you made do, you figured it out. And in those hardship posts, often uh, families, Foreign Service spouses, and Foreign Service officers do make lifelong friends 
because of that bond. So that was sounds like an interesting time that you wound up loving. And I can see looking back on it very fondly. It was the navel of the universe. I think to me, every post was. I just thought if we're going there, it has to be the most important thing in the world. (laughs) So then you had four children in four years, in five years. So tell us where and when your kids were born. Well, when we left the Congo, we'd been married five or six years and had no offspring. The Congo wasn't a place to really check up on why. And so because we had lived five years in Greece and I had worked there at orphanages, which were very sad places, I said, you know, instead of killing ourselves to have a child, let's just adopt a child. And we went home from the Congo via Athens and we adopted the most perfect baby boy named Christopher. And Monty's next assignment was in Washington. And I think as so often happens, about an hour later, I was pregnant. And uh, so we had Christopher in the summer of 65, and then Jonathan was born in Washington in the summer of 66. And then after two years, Monty was transferred to London, and I stepped off the airplane about ready to give birth to David in London in October of 67. So I had three children under three in London. And then I had a respite for a year before I had our daughter. And she was born in Bangkok. So one in Athens, one in Washington, one in London, and the last in Bangkok. So they started off internationally. They never knew anything else. Yeah. So after living in Washington from 1965 to 67, and in London during the swing in 60s from 67 to 69, you then did a direct transfer to Vientiane, Laos from 1969 to 72 during the height of the war in Southeast Asia, where Monty was Deputy Chief of Mission, DCM, and you were pregnant, and you had three toddlers when you moved there? (laughs) Yeah, get get pregnant and move? Yes, once again, and then I had to go down to Bangkok, yeah. So what was life like for you and your young family during that posting, and what about your role as the wife of the DCM in Vientiane, which was a very large embassy? Yeah, it was huge, a huge aid mission, very large. So I worked alongside with the ambassador's wife. The ambassador was Matt Godley, and he had been our ambassador in the Congo, and he loved gung-ho. He just adored hardship posts. And the reason why we up and left London, just as I'd ordered season tickets (laughs) to everything (laughs) in London, and off we went in the summer of 69. And there I did have senior spousal duties. I was den mother to dozens and dozens and dozens of women keeping up morale. Although, unlike the Congo, it had the hardships of the Congo, but we now had air conditioning, we had generators, I had a full staff, we had a driver, I had a butler, a cook, a maid, I had somebody to pad behind the children. So I was Lady Bountiful. And uh, and I also flew around the country a lot. We would climb in these cargo planes and sit. They had open rear ends, which terrified me. You know, I'd sit in those bucket seats and think, what if I slide down and out? Monty here too went all over the country. There were no roads. And so you flew in tiny planes or big C-130s. And I really explored the whole country with him. And we actually took the boys along every now and then. At age four, three, and two, we'd throw them into helicopters and cargo planes. And they, of course, thought it was terrific. And I can still remember he took Jonathan for his fourth birthday to Vietnam. And when he came back, I said, what are we going to do for an encore on his fifth birthday? He had landed in Da Nang and they took a night of incoming rockets. (laughs) And Jonathan thought it was terrific. So I just said, we'll never be able to top that for his fifth birthday. 
And this was Vietnam during the war. Right in the height of it. Anyway, no, I had serious duties like my mother. I was a den mother. I headed charity groups. I I visited orphanages. I raised money for people. I did charitable works. I also raised the kids. I mean, I drove them to their kindergartens. I took them swimming, you know, this kind of thing. And then, of course, in the evening, I put on my pearls and we'd have people for dinner or we'd have to go out. That too, because it was a hardship post, but Americans lived very well. We did have air conditioning, big houses, generators and staff, and I didn't have to worry about food. And Laos was three plus years. Once again, I just left in tears. I just felt that it was going to fall, of course, we all knew. And it was playing out the chess game and trying to give it a decent interval. The politics were quite interesting. I also, at this point, I should add one thing. I would say from my first post on, what I loved was to be a street reporter. And I covered the local scene. Monty talked to government officials, and I told him the price of bread and what the bus driver said. And I was a contributor. And a lot of his cablegrams have me in them because I would feed him stuff. And I loved it. I loved being a cub reporter. So you were the eyes and ears I was the eyes and ears at the street level, and it led to my own career as a writer. So that was a help. Yeah, and up to... 1972, when you left Vientiane, you were still evaluated on Monty's efficiency report. So I'm sure he appreciated that, and I hope the State Department did too. So let's skip ahead a little bit. You went back to the U.S. and spent a year at Harvard, and then all of a sudden, Monty was transferred. He was transferred suddenly to Athens as DCM, where he served from 1974 to 76, which was your fourth move in in two years. You must have become a real expert at that. But this in Greece was during a very fraught period, just after the Turkish troops invaded Cyprus, and the Greek junta had just fallen, and the country was attempting to transition to a functioning economy and democracy after seven years of military dictatorship. So that was one of the most interesting years in Greek history. So how was that for you and your family? Well, it was terrific for us. We had served there for five years. We had met there. We had married there. Our first child was born there. We had a very special feeling for Greece. We were very, very unhappy during the hunter years when we thought, poor old Greece. It has a very turbulent history and military dictatorships are very much a part of it. One thing about Greek history is that military dictatorships haven't ever lasted very long. The Greeks are too feisty. And uh, it did fall after seven years. And Monty, who was then in Washington, we had just arrived after the Harvard year, and then we were in Washington. I was virtually still trying to hang up curtains. And he was told to hop on a plane and get to Athens because the junta had fallen and the State Department was cleaning house. There had been a too cozy relationship, naturally, with the junta. And they wanted somebody who knew Greece. And we knew the players. We knew all the players who had been coming up in the world. And so Monty was parachuted back into Greece to be the DCM. The ambassador was a Nixon appointee called Henry Tasca, who had been there during much of the winter years and thought that he could stay on and claim to have brought back democracy. But this was about the time that Nixon was on his knees with Henry Kissinger. So Tasca didn't last very long. But Monty overlapped with him for six weeks or so, and I think those were not very easy times for him. At any rate, I then followed with the kids and cats and dogs and all of that, and we lived in the 
DCM house and it was lovely. And the children went to the Campion School, which was a little English school. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I was home again. I knew where to buy yogurt. And there were still little old ladies who would darn your stockings. I mean, this was 1974. And we, of course, spoke Greek. There were new issues. And those were very, very challenging. The terrorist group called 17 November raised its head during that time and killed our CIA station chief. And it was a time of morale building. It was a time of keeping your friendships with Greeks and Greece at a time when the younger Greeks were very anti-American. They only knew the junta, and they were convinced that it was American-backed. Up to a point it was because of home porting. We kept the Sixth Fleet anchored in Piraeus, and therefore you didn't criticize the junta too much. And the vice president was Spiro Agnew, a Greek-American, and he loved to go back and forth and make business deals. So it was a period of terrific conflict and uncertainty, the first signs that Americans could be gunned down. But we loved it. It was fascinating. Uh, Karaman Lis was brought back from exile to be the prime minister again, and our erstwhile friend, Andreas Papandreou, whom we had known in the late 50s, came back as the leader of a socialist party that was virulently anti-American. So it made for very interesting politics. And I was very happy. And once again, I did my thing. I gave dinner parties. I went to charities. Um, I remember working with polio, a group that put polio children on horses. I raised money for things. I held bazaars. But I drove myself around. I went to the Friday morning market and picked out tomatoes. I took the kids to school. So I had a mixture of a normal American mother with four kids and the wife of the DCM, where you did represent your country and you did it in pearls and good-looking cocktail dresses. So that was really a time of contradictions oh, because yeah. a lot of the Greeks, maybe the younger ones, forgot about the Marshall Plan and how the U.S. had really helped them after World War II and their civil war and only saw the U.S.'s complicity in the junta. Maybe this is the time to talk about your relationship with Andreas Papandreou and his wife, Margaret, who was born American and he became American. But during that time and after, when he became prime minister, talked an anti-American game. So from the 1960s, you and Monty were good friends with this American couple and had a, a three-decade friendship with them that was very complicated. So can you describe how that went with Andreas and Margaret Papandreou and Andreas then in the 80s becoming Prime Minister of Greece? We had met Andy and Maggie, as they were called. He had been, or was, the chairman of the economics department at the University of California, Berkeley. He'd had a meteoric career as an economist. He had left Greece on the eve of World War II, gotten a PhD at Harvard, and had moved up the ladder and was chosen by California to be chairman of the economics department. And Carmen Lis was prime minister in 1959. He invited Andy <laughs> to come to Greece for one year, an academic year, to study the Greek economy, which was backwards at the time, and how it might be improved. So he came as a theoretician, and he spent the academic year working at the ministry of this and the ministry of that, getting the figures and preparing reports on how it might be strengthened and come closer to the European level. Greece was still considered the poor man of Europe, and um, they happened to live on our street, and we would swap 
cups of sugar. I babysat their kids, walked their dog. We all did this. And they were Andy and Maggie. But then he was drawn because his father was a very prominent Greek politician and was a former prime minister. And Andy's father had always wanted his son to come home to Greece and go into politics and become his heir. I should mention that Monty wrote a book about this, which is just out, and it's called Gifted Greek, The Enigma of Andreas Papandreou. At any rate, we were really good friends, and we were four Americans sharing our impressions of this enchanting but Byzantine country, which was fraught with problems. And by 1964, he had made up his mind to give up his American citizenship and work for his father. And he then moved permanently to Athens with his American wife, his four American kids. He put them all into Greek school and they turned into a Greek family. And it wasn't until Monty went back to Athens, parachuted in, as the DCM in July of 1974, virtually on the same day that Kataman Lys flew in to become the prime minister again, and Andreas flew back from Canada, where he'd been in exile, as the leader of PASOK, which was the first socialist party of uh, Greece. So then you moved to Abidjan in the Ivory Coast, where Monty had his first ambassadorship from 1976 to 79. So how did your family adjust to that African post, and what was your role as wife of the ambassador? So after two-plus years as the DCM, he had a phone call saying, we owe you one, and we're going to put you forward as ambassador to the Ivory Coast. And I remember going around stomping my feet and saying, I don't want you to be the number one in Abidjan. I'm very happy if you're the number two in Athens. And the kids who had changed schools, a Harvard year, a Washington year, and then the school in Athens. And I just said, they have to change schools again, and and I don't want to go. So there was a certain amount of resistance, but of course I knew that we were going. Uh, It never occurred to me to say, I'm not going. I think that happens now but that's because women work um, for pay, I mean. And so off we went, and I was not a happy camper, but of course, I loved it. (laughs) And it was a normal post. We had had the Congo, we'd had the war in uh, Laos, we'd had Greece, and these were very turbulent times. And the Ivory Coast was Africa's great success story. It was peaceful, it was prosperous. Um, You could go ice skating in Abidjan, you know. It was that kind of modern city. And I was busy as the wife of the ambassador once again, I did my thing. I was head of the household. I had a staff. The hardest thing I had to do was that we had our children in two different schools. We put two of them into the French school and two into the international school. And it turned out that the carpool arrangements were absolutely horrendous. There were seven carpools to get these four kids in and out of school. But I was also the wife of the ambassador, the spouse, I think we say now. And I did my thing. I entertained. I went to charity events. I traveled with Monty. We went to villages where aid money had gone. We went to schools. We went to coffee plantations because Hershey's ordered all of its chocolate from there. And when we went home, I remember we made a trip to Pennsylvania just to see the Hershey's plant. Having seen it at the one end, I wanted to see it come out at the other end. We did a lot of traveling We and we took the kids with us. Monty said it was the first post in a long time where we were the good guys and that Everybody liked Americans. They had no reason not to. We had a house with a swimming pool. And so we were the most popular family on the block. And the kids brought home all their friends and 
the place was jumping. And here is where I want to say my children who are 50 and over now, when I, whenever we asked what was your favorite post, they said the Ivory Coast. And we would say, why? Because it was so normal. Because you were there for dinner. Because you drove us to school. Okay, so then you come back to the National Defense University and lived in Washington, D.C. for two years. And then in 1981, Monty was named ambassador to Greece, which must have been his dream job and also yours after living in Athens with your parents and then two previous tours there with Monty. So how did you see Greece changing over the years and especially U.S.-Greek relations? It was another world. Athens had changed, of course, over the years. In 1959, it was a kind of quaint Balkan town. In 74, it was turning to concrete. And by the time we went back in 81, it was a concrete jungle all the way up to the mountains. And we went back for the third time to the house where I had lived with my parents, which was now incredibly chic. It had been redone several times, and it was just lovely. I didn't have to do a thing. And of course, it was bliss to be back. And we were so at home. And we spoke Greek with the household staff, you know. And the butler had known me (laughs) when I was 22 years old. And it was just coming home. We were very much at home, but you must have felt the same way. But tell me about, in the early 1980s, the relationships between the United States and Greece and how they had been evolving, and including Andreas Papandreou, who at that time was prime minister. He had been running for prime minister since 1974. The conservatives had held on, but losing their majority each time. And the Socialist Party, PASOK, doubled its vote between 74 and 77, doubled it again in the summer of 81, which is when we went back and Andreas was campaigning to become Greece's first socialist prime minister. When I emphasize the the whole word socialist, it is because The rest of Europe had had democratic socialist parties since Bismarck. I mean, it was normal. But Greece, it was considered the same thing as communist, which it isn't. Greece had been divided between conservatives who tended to be royalists, supporters of the king, and the opposition, which tried to be centrist, but was constantly being polarized towards the communists, which was anti-royalist and wanted reparations for the civil war. So it was complicated and Andreas symbolized everybody age 40 and under, plus the old veterans of World War II and the civil war who were very angry that the monarchy came back to Greece after World War II and the history of the Western powers, especially ours, relationship to the monarchy and conservative governments and to the junta. But this was during the height of the Cold War. And this was what you did. You were either with us or you weren't. So along comes Papandreou. And that whole summer of 81, it was the most raucous campaign. And as you know, Bonnie, the Greeks campaign with bullhorns going through the streets. And you can't hear yourself think. And that whole summer was just out, out Americans, out, you know, Greece out of NATO, out of the EU. Take your bases of death away from Greece. Greeks die because of imperialist Americans and so forth. And that was Andreas, our old friend (laughs) from 1959. And it was a very interesting time. And um, the election was held in October or September, perhaps, and he won. It was a clear victory. The conservatives were done for. So it was a fascinating time. It was Papandreou's first term. And I think Monty was the one to be there because he knew this man. He just knew him inside out. And they worked behind the scenes very closely together, leaving Andreas free to bullhorn his way 
to his extreme left, chanting these really vile opinions about America as an imperialist country. And then he would call up Monty and say, you and I have to talk. How am I going to get out of this? Literally. Uh, So I think that one can say, if ever there was a need for an ambassador who could work directly with the prime minister by sheer coincidence, Monty and was it. And we, of course, met his whole government, and there were some wonderful people whom he brought from Canada and from the States, and they were liberated, and I just loved them all. And then he had the old guard, the hardline anti-Americans, whom he had to kowtow to very often. So I would say, politically, it was the apotheosis of everything that a political officer learns how to do. Exactly. And also the rise in terrorism by the terrorist group 17 November, who were killing Americans, other foreigners, and wealthy Greeks. So that was a difficult time that lasted for decades until they were finally rounded up in 2002. No, it took 25 to 30 years. And thanks to Monty's successors who kept on pushing and working on it, in our time, Monty too, he brought in the experts and they analyzed suitcases that were bombs and all of this kind of thing. And they took it to the Ministry of the Interior, which would conveniently look, just look the other way. I think for the socialist government, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And they were lenient because they felt these were people who had fought the junta, who had gone into exile, and they deserved to be heard. And okay, you lose a few people along the way. But of course, it was much worse than that. And they killed with impunity. I mean, they just went after rich Greeks. They went after Europeans. There were British diplomats killed. Three Americans were killed on our watch, which was so awful for me. It was just awful. What can you say? And the Minister of Public Order, Michalis Krisohoidis, who was really instrumental in rounding them up, and they are now in prison. So let's move ahead. So those were very busy and interesting years in Athens when Monty was ambassador. And then he retired in 1987. Right. And then he passed away in his 90s in 2016. So I wanted to ask, you had mentioned your daughter, Emily, and her husband, Elliot, who have been a tandem couple in the Foreign Service for the past 15 years, raising their three children. Uh, Did any of your sons join the Foreign Service or work in international affairs after having their whole childhood overseas? Well, three of my four kids have kept on trucking. I mean, they went overseas and they stayed there and they married foreign (laughs) (laughs) foreign women. So I have one son now in Brussels, another in Riyadh, and one is a journalist and the other is in the banking business, but the international end of it. And um, Emily is in the Foreign Service and persuaded her husband, who was a lawyer when they got married, and said, you better go into the Foreign Service. (laughs) And so they are a twofer and they're now currently in Kenya. And the one who is white picket fence follow the baseball team, is our Greek-born child (laughs) who loves living in the States, loves to travel, but wouldn't dream of taking a job overseas. So you have seen a lot of changes in the Foreign Service over three decades. Your parents' 37-year diplomatic career, your 28 years with Monty in the Foreign Service from 1959 to 88, and now your daughter's 15-year ongoing Foreign Service career. So do you have any final thoughts, lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering careers in the Foreign Service? And what would today be realistic expectations for a career in the Foreign Service for a family? Well, even though it has changed dramatically 
And we don't call spouses wives because a spouse can be anything. But I think that there's one basic outlook that will continue forever if there is a foreign service forever. I think that the two people ought to approach it in a compatible frame of mind. If you're in love with somebody who just has to have the sidewalks of Chicago under his or her feet and wants to be a realtor in Bethesda, it isn't a good thing. Love isn't going to conquer all. So I do think that there has to be a certain element of wanderlust in a spouse there. And even if you don't do the old-fashioned foreign service spouse thing, you don't give a dinner party, you don't dress up, you don't wear striped pants, but you have to be comfortable with being exposed to foreign cultures and moving, peripatetic life, different cultures. The more languages you speak, the better. And you have to approach that with a mind that is curious and isn't miserable. If you're miserable, forget about it. And here too, I think it would help if you're not working the way you did, that you have to be very interested in doing something. Or you may be very busy raising young kids. I think the choices are now greater, whereas we were trailing spouses and we were expected to make life easy for our husbands. And that's not true anymore. Husbands do a lot more. But at any rate, for a spouse, approach it in a compatible frame of mind. Be flexible about moving and finding different things to do. For a Foreign Service family, I'm not sure I'm the best model for how to raise kids in the Foreign Service. I raised them the same way my parents raised my two brothers and me, which was basically not to think too much about it. (laughs) Just this is what happens. (laughs) And I think if I had to do it over again, I would have taken time with each one. I would have thought about their colleges. I would have said to Monty, I'm taking them home to visit school campuses and so forth. Nothing. We just put them on a plane and said, lots of luck. And I don't recommend that. Although they were quite unhappy in their college years, but here they are. Absolutely perfect. College isn't the be all and the end all, or at least it wasn't for ours. But I think we did raise them to be resilient and they didn't know anything else. Most kids grow up taking whatever circumstances they are born into. Ours was one of moving around the world, and they just thought everybody else did, too. (laughs) Okay, so Tony, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wide-ranging Foreign Service experiences and insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.